This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled, Look What Happened to My Pocket Change, Low to to Middle Income Saving and Investing. And joining me from the Chicago area in the United States, Rochelle Melanie, my guest author. Welcome to the program, Rochelle. Thank you, Dan. You have an interesting story just on your own. You are a person not that just uh, talked about finances, but also have experienced some methods of improving your lifestyle, correct? That is correct. You started out as a teller in a banking institution. Share a little more of your story and the inspiration behind putting this book into print. Uh, Many years ago, I always wanted to work for a financial institution, and basically the easiest way in was to become a teller. And I remember many years ago applying for the position. Um, Actually, I applied over the phone um, when interviews during those days was much easier. And I got in as a teller and pretty much uh, moved up the ranks pretty quick, uh, just learning everything there was to know about banking. And from being a teller, I ended up going to customer service and then a personal banker, and from there, um, senior banker, branch manager, investment rep, um, trust, everything. So it kind of just elevated from there. Um, starting as a teller, you know, I didn't know that 25 years later I would still be in the financial institutions, but um, it's, it's been a great run, and it's something that I enjoy, and I, I've um, learned quite a bit from it. So Your your beginnings with family, yeah, you grew into, you were born into a very wealthy family, though, weren't you? No, 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 not at all. Um, actually, uh, middle-class family, um, back in the 70s, um, I had, you know, I, my mother and father and three siblings. And my mother and father, I remember, you know, going to work, working very hard every day. And the incomes were average. It was not a wealthy family at all. Um, just the incomes together kind of made it a little above middle income. Uh, but that was that was a great platform because, Seeing my mother and father go to work every day and knowing what I needed to do to um, to you know establish myself, that that just was a you know good upbringing, but um, not wealthy, not wealthy uh-huh. at all. I was only <laughs> I was only teasing, but you have included in your book the importance of work ethic, and you learned that from your parents apparently. Uh, yes, I did. Yes, I did. Uh, my mother and father, like I said, every day they got up, they went to work. Um, they had various jobs. My father, actually, he was at his company for 30 years, um, General Motors. And he just, you know, every morning there was no complaints or anything like that. I just got up and went to work. And then my mother also, you know, um, holding down the household, she also went to work every day. And she taught us the importance of working, paying bills, and, you know, just doing the best you can. You talk about pocket change in your book. That seems to be the fundamental challenge for most of us. We have pocket change, we lose it or don't pay attention to it. What is your advice for people and pocket change? Well, you know, it's it's kind of amazing. It's um, unbelievable, but actually um, in the 70s, 80s, um, just growing up, you didn't have a lot of income, you didn't know a lot about savings and investing, and therefore... Uh, we all had pocket change, and the importance of that is to, you know, I set aside the pocket change. I, I had a piggy bank that I started off with, and because pocket change is so easy to come by, I just started accumulating the pocket change, and once a year, once my piggy bank got full, I graduated to a larger bank, and then I took it into the bank, had it counted, and amazingly, after a year, I think it came out to about 1500 or something like that. Wow. And so. That's actually what started my savings account, opened the savings account. I continued to save the pocket change, but opened the savings account, and as I worked, um, I added you know, funds, whatever I could, to that. Not having a lot to save um, pocket change, it, it kind of equated to, um, it made a big deal, made a big difference. 
you have chapters like Where Does Wealth Come From? Just some basic information there. Why Life Needs Organization. I think every one of us can benefit from that. The Benefits of a Good Work Ethic and Credit and Paying Your Bills. Banks, Finance Companies. And here's one that seems to sneak up on a few people. Loan Stores. What is your observation of Loan Stores? Well, you know, in a lot of the, I find, low to middle income neighborhoods, you find loan stores all over the place because it's evidence that um, people get behind in their bills and they need a quick way out. Um, a lot of times they're not in a position to think rationally or logically, and the first thing they think about is a loan store because these stores kind of offer uh, funding to individuals in dire need, mm-hmm. um, individuals that probably cannot get a loan or help from a financial institution. So therefore, this is the quickest way out. And and, and I'm just not fond of loan stores because also the regulation for those stores are quite different from a bank. Um, I've had friends, families that borrow money from a loan store and they end up with a 27% or 36% um, interest rate. I even had friends that maybe borrowed and put up a tie car, um, tie, the car title mm-hmm. um, from, you know, for a loan end up losing a car. You send a car that's value at about $9,000, $10,000 for a $1,500 loan. Ouch. And I just think they prey um, on the less fortunate. I, I happen to agree with you. I've had some acquaintances that worked in that industry, not, I don't know, for very long, but there seems to be a predatory aspect to the loan stores. I've, I've, I've heard of interest rates as high as 40%. People yeah. need to be aware of that, uh, need to be aware of their surroundings, need to be aware of their finances, and need to be aware of what decisions they're making on the spur of the moment or in a crisis. Yes, exactly. Uh, When you begin to write your book, who was your target audience? Who did you want to reach with your message? You know, actually, I I started off um, targeting uh, minorities, uh, but then that changed because also we know there's more than just minorities that's having um, financial crisis and debt problems and things like that. So basically, my target is basically low to middle-income individuals. It doesn't matter what um, racial, ethnic group, you know, they're made up of, but just low to middle individuals who find themselves struggling, trying to pay the bills, um, and, and find it really difficult to say because a lot of these individuals think that you need to make a substantial amount to start saving. Um, but you know, after paying all your bills and things like that, even pocket change, you know, can start it off. So um, all ages, but mainly low to middle income individuals, because our saving strategies has to be different from the wealthy. It does. I was watching a program yesterday that had to do with finances, and a young lady who was possibly 20, 21, was living at home and really taking advantage of her mom. Her mom was paying a lot of her bills, and she had run up credit bills up around $10,000 and really was not contributing to that, and was looking at credit cards and and easy money uh, without any conscience of how it was used. What is your advice to young people getting into credit situations? Well, you know, one thing about that, um, my advice, it has to start actually with the parents um, because even if you're, you know, not 21 years of age or whatever, and and if you do have a job, what happens when we started working, I started, I think at about age 14, 15, and it was part-time, and the fact that maybe I brought home, I don't know, maybe $50 a week or whatever, my mother encouraged us to pay bills. Um, We would pay a portion of rent, and it could be $10 a week. This money she then saved and established accounts for us, but at the time we didn't know. But establishing debt up front and teaching a child how to pay bills, even if it's $5, $10, or whatever, that'll get the ball rolling. Um, If you're at home, uh, it's, it's even easier to save because you don't have the responsibility of paying a large amount of rent outside. And so, therefore... You can save money, um, but it, it has to be taught, I think, you know, at an early age and, and not allowing a teenager to sit at home and shop and, you know, buy the next iPhone and things like that. But the uh-huh. responsibility has to be there. What do you want readers to take away from your work, from this, this particular book? Well, this particular book, <clears throat> um, I want them to take away that the main thing is that you don't have to be wealthy to start saving and investing. 
um, you can start with any amount. Um, you can start with, there, there's various vehicles, and the most important thing is that you establish a goal. And to reach that goal, of course, you have to stick to the plan. Um, my book is a short read, and I made it that way simply because a lot of times, you know, you go into a store, you see a financial book, and a lot of people are overwhelmed with that. Yes. I have a short read, and it's intriguing. Um, it's not, you don't have to be financially savvy to understand, you know, what I'm trying to convey in it. I don't use a lot of technical jargon in the book. Um, there's a lot of technical investing things that I use, but I offer a definition along the way for each thing that, you know, I may talk about. Uh, but most importantly, I, I just want them to understand that to live well, you do not have to be wealthy. And you can start, you know, at any amount. That's that's the main thing. Can anybody at any I guess any uh, status in life as far as finances, whether they're successful or not successful at the current uh, time, can they learn from your book? Uh, yes, they can, um, actually, because um, individuals that's um, financially savvy, they have a different way of investing. Um, there's a lot of techniques in place, a lot of sheltering in place for them. And I can simplify a lot of the things that they actually go out and pay financial consultants um, to do for them. And a lot of them don't have to take the time to, you know, learn these technical things by themselves because they do have the wealth to hire someone financially. But I just kind of bring down and make it its a strategic plan, and, and they can learn from what, you know, I'm conveying. Um, there's a lot for an individual that does not, like I said, know about finances. They'll be surprised uh, because I incorporate a lot of things. It's not just the finances that you need. You know, you need organization. You need discipline. You need there's there's workout ethics. All of these things play a part because it makes you um, physically, you know, yes. energized and to go out and you do these things. So I, I do believe that uh, whether the financial savvy, you know, they can learn because there's a lot of things they don't know because somebody else is doing it for them. And they would be surprised. It's not as hard as the wealthy make it seem to be, you know. That's, it is, there is some mystery. Anytime you mention the word money or finances, people, their eyes glaze over. And you've simplified yes. this by even talking about something that the older generation is familiar with and the younger generation has ignored. That's United States savings bonds. You yes. talk about mutual funds, the stock market, real estate, deferred income, investing with real estate, and then the end result, which is you've got a secure future. That's right. That's right. How would you introduce this book in a couple of sentences to somebody and get them interested in getting their very own copy of your your 122-page book? Well, to introduce it, like I said, um, I think the best thing I can say, is it's not convoluted. It's, it's a short read, and I basically get right to the point. You find that a lot of finance books, you know, you have to read certain chapters to get here, to get there. Uh, mine's is to the point. Um, it's um, filled with a lot of different um, experiences. Um, it's not arrogant. Um, you know, I refer to myself, you know, the average individual, uh, low to middle class. That's how I got started. And also, like I said, a lot of the technical jargon, I, I do provide a definition along the way. You don't have to close the book and kind of look up this word and see what I'm talking about. Yes. A lot of the strategies I do explain in details in my terms. So it's, it's easy to relate to. Rochelle, how long did it take you to move from pocket change to actually owning real estate, automobiles, things that people are pursuing? Okay. Well, actually, um, saving a pocket change, it took me over a course of a couple of years. And from there, um, as I mentioned, I opened a um, savings account. And then from there, I decided after all my bills were paid, I started purchasing savings bonds with whatever I had left over. When the savings bond market kind of changed and the interest rates started to drop, I started to get into the mutual funds, which is another year later. After the mutual funds, which is a more, there's no investment that's, you know, secure, stable. Right. But it's uh, probably the most stable out of um, all the things I've done. And from the mutual funds, you know, I started to invest in the stock market, which um, became very lucrative. And after, I think it was 2008, we started having a lot of financial crisis with the um, debt 
in the United States, and I needed something more secure. So then from there, I started buying real estate. And the thing about it with the real estate, um, I owned one property and actually used the equity in that property to acquire several other properties. So the time frame, uh, it depends. I was pretty aggressive, but it took anywhere from like maybe four or five years um, to move into the real estate. So. But the, but the important thing was you, you had a plan and you stuck with it, and yeah, and, and yeah, you had yeah. pursued. And it all started from the pocket. Change. And you started with pocket change. Simple book, hundred twenty, yeah, hundred twenty-two pages, yeah. which is excellent. Yeah. I have a short attention span, so that works well for someone <laughs> like me. You talk about wealth, the importance of organization. That's something I need help with every single day of my life. I uh, have to look at my uh, name tag inside my laundry uh, to know who I am sometimes. But the title of the book is, uh, uh, you know catchy. Look what happened to my pocket change. Low to middle income saving and investing. Our author who has joined me from Chicago is Rochelle Melanie. Rochelle, where do we get copies of your book? You know, actually the book is available online over uh, all over the United States with 44,000 retailers. Um, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Books a Million. It could be ordered any of those places. I also, my website, it's available. Um, and that's www.rmelanie.com. There's a link there also. You can purchase the book. There's excerpts, you know, excerpts of the book. They're available. Um, so pretty much everywhere. Have you more to tell? Is there a follow-up book possibly in the works? You know, I do. Um, actually, I'm, I'm working on a couple things. I'm working on a children's finance book. Um, I have a little nephew, Mylon, and um, I often talk to him about finance. He's only seven. <laughs> and we talk, we go to the bookstore, and I'm just waiting um, when he gets of age, and he starts asking me these questions on his own. But I am working on the children's book, and also I do have, I'm working on a follow-up to this particular book. The reason for the follow-up is because this book is like an introduction, um, but it covers a lot of territory. In my second book, I want to go more in-depth about savings and investments where I talk about options and things like that, so it's a little more detail. Get into the more complicated stuff. Well, I hope we get a chance to talk to you about that as well. Thank you for sharing your story about this book, Look What Happened to My Pocket Change. Everybody can relate to that. Thank you, Rochelle Melanie, for joining me this morning. You're welcome, Jay. Thank you. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Parker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's baby and toddler instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Insanity Begins at Home, Surviving Ma and the Road, a Therapist's Memoir, and the author is Ken Ludmer, and Ken joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Ken. Hi, Steve. You're the therapist. This is your memoir, and probably a lot can identify uh, growing up, struggling to really understand mom and dad and uh, coming from different religions and trying to understand uh, what was happening in your own life, especially as a teenager. So you finally get a chance to share with her. Well, the, we it took many, many years for us to start to share it. I mean, the only thing we had together when when we were young was baseball. 
and my mom was an avid Yankee fan and taught me baseball, and we would watch the World Series together and watch Joe DiMaggio and watch the Yankees, and uh, I eventually played ball. And that's what we shared. Uh, when my father died when I was 15, mom stopped coming to the games and really uh, didn't take much interest in me because she was overwhelmed. It took till she was 91 till 92 and a half for us to really have uh, the talk and that's the talk of the book that's where I take care of her after she breaks her hip and recovers and then has a heart attack and recovers and then has a stroke and so, recovers so that's where you get to know each other by sharing that's stories of each we, other's life we, uh, she tells me about her and I tell her about me during most of the years we just battled and didn't see one another or it was conflicted the whole time and I tried three different times to go to therapy and improve myself and come back and try with her but mom was pretty rough she was a perfectionist and she liked it her way and uh, um, as you see in the book she never uh, was unarmed she always had a zinger ready and so, a, as you point out, a raucous, always conflicted, yet loving relationship with mom. But at the same time, uh, you had your own desires to get out and find out about the world. I had to go. When when I was a young man, uh, I had started working in New York at 14, and I had uh, was a messenger, and I learned the subway system and the bus system, and I saw Greenwich Village for the first time, and it was amazing to me to see grown men during the day not dressed in shirts and ties and not in an office. And I started to talk to them, and I learned about poets, and I learned about the arts, and eventually learned about music. And as a teenager, I went to, uh, after my father died when I was just turned 16, uh, and my mother was kind of in bed and didn't get up for two years, I would take off, and I would go into New York. And I would go to all the jazz clubs and see all the big jazz players of the day, like people like Miles Davis and Cannonball Adderley and Dave Brubeck. And I learned about the blues. And eventually all that stuff led me to go on the road. And so I tell all the stories of a young man who heard about the road and heard about Woody Guthrie and heard about all hitchhiking, and that's what I did. So hitchhiking, kind of the old school. Yeah, hitchhiking through the good old USA and Europe during the 60s. Uh, just uh, kids today love to read about folks like you that had such a carefree life at one time. Yeah, well, uh, you can't do, I think, what I did uh, now. It's much too dangerous. I mean, it was dangerous back then. It wasn't the best of times back in the 60s. There was uh, the racial difficulty. There was the assassination of Kennedy. There was political upheaval, uh, the war in Vietnam. It was not an easy time. It was quite a raucous time. And when I first did it, it was 1965. And then the second one was in 1969, doing all all of the Vietnam struggles uh, and it was great to see cultural America back then you know the people that were isolated from the main headlines and just farmers or salesmen on the road and then as you got into the bigger cities and around the universities you could feel all the tumult but it was great for me to see all the people of America the various different types and and I loved it and the one thing I'm very happy about is I journaled it I brought along a pen and a notepad, and I journaled every ride that I took. I tried to describe the person or as much as I could understand who they were at that time, uh, being a young man. Um, I wrote it all down. It took it took till now for me to put it together and, and, and write the book. And so I write it from the perspective of a, of a kind of mature therapist now, looking back at this young man experiencing the world. But uh, I certainly did do everything, and the word no was not in my repertoire at that point. I love the way you start your book. Uh, it's the last day of January 1942, a month after the, that month following the attack on Pearl Harbor and 
The United States is testing its air raid sirens for the first time. Your mother is very late stage pregnancy. About You're about due, and suddenly these sirens go, go off, and she thinks Japan is attacking. That's right. And she ran around that apartment scared out of her mind. She closed the, the drapes. She didn't know really what to do, and she jumped in the bed and put the covers over her head. Um, my father uh, had gone shopping with my oldest sister, and they weren't going to be back for hours. And so she was alone and panicky. And the next thing that happened was that her water broke. <laughs> so <Right. laughs> she called her friend who came over, and they said, well, we gotta, we got to go to the hospital. And sure enough, they, uh, they called the doctor, and they said they'd meet him at uh, Jersey City down in uh, Margaret Haig Hospital. They got in the car. And they got about halfway there, and my mother said, we're never going to make it. So they had to pull over and went to Christ Hospital. And they got to the emergency room, and the doctors there uh, confirmed that the baby was due, and uh, nobody there wanted to uh, deliver the baby. Back in those days, uh, you waited for the uh, obstetrician to come. So they called uh, Margaret Haig and rerouted the doctor. And in the meantime, they uh, tied my mother's knees together with a sheet. It was kind of common practice wow. back then. Just, well, <laughs> the doctor's not here, so you're just going to have to... Uh, you're going to have to wait. Oh, my goodness. You're going to have to wait. Oh, and so goodness. in the book, I tell the story is that I'm uh, on my way out, and when I get to the, uh, to the exit, it was blocked. And there's all of nature pushing me to get out, and I can't. And so finally, when the doctor showed up, they untied the the sheets and uh, I was permitted to emerge and the nurses said uh, he's a carrot top screamer and he does not look happy at <laughs> all <laughs> and so my mother swears that uh, being blocked at birth is why I have always been impatient <laughs> with waiting well your <laughs> mom quote was uh, he came out with a headache and uh, from that day on he gave one to everybody else <laughs> Well, your mom came from one kind of religious background, your father from another, and that was, uh, there. so basically not much tradition in the family, you growing up. No, my mother's uh, uh, parents were Catholic and Protestant, and they met at Ellis Island, and they had nothing in common, actually. My, my grandmother was much more cultured and had art and literature, and she drank white wine and ate veal, and my grandfather was from southern Germany and Plattdeutsch, and he, uh, he was a farmer, and they ate sausages and drank beer and uh, uh, ate potatoes. They had nothing in common, and yet they got together and uh, spent 70 years together. And so my mother never went to any religion. Uh, she was like a free thinker. She was kind of a, one of the first women's liberationists. She she was an independent woman who was fiercely uh, in, independent and controlled everything. And uh, she fell in love with my father, who uh, she met in high school. He was three years older, and uh, he was from an Orthodox Jewish family who had just settled in Brooklyn, and the oldest brother brought them to New Jersey. And for whatever reason, she married him. And, of course, his family, following their traditions, they uh, they never came, recognized the marriage, or my mother. And for 10 years uh, after my sister was born, they never came uh, to see my father or my mother or my sister. And then I was born. And in the Jewish tradition, uh, I could marry a Jewish woman and restore the family name to its Jewish roots. So... They came to see me, and this set up a huge conflict with my mother. I mean, she just resented them and said she wanted nothing to do with them whatsoever. So and that, that was the family life I had, which was conflict and battles and differences. So when you finally get together with your mom, she needs you. She's in her later years. She, you spend 18 months with her. And where, what happened where you finally, both of you, just kind of uh, let each one be themselves and you found peace? What, what was it? At, how did that occur? It, it was my doing. Um, 
I uh, went back into therapy for the third time at age 60. You know, I'm a family therapist, uh, and uh, I've been doing this for the last 46 years. So I'm quite familiar with family systems and how they operate, and and I knew mine was very unusual. And, and the thing that uh, I got out of that is that I survived is that I became healthy and I was able to care for others and get married and have children and, and have a you know, very successful life. But the one thing was always missing was that the loss of my mother is that because she was so critical and so demeaning and so tough that I had to get away from her. And I decided I would try one more time. And I finally learned that as a therapist, my issues were separate than hers, and I kept letting hers uh, derail me, and uh, I would react to her criticism and stuff, and I learned to not to. And once they bounced off me and they didn't bother me, uh, then I could direct conversation where I, I directed her to talk about herself, which she liked. And then her stories were interesting about growing up back in the 20s and 30s, and I, I learned about what life was like for her. And then she really took an interest in all my travels. Uh, she was proud of me at that point that I had survived and that I had led a very interesting life and had, you know, seen things and I'd been all over the world and had many, many stories. Uh, and she wanted to hear about me as a young man and, and what I really saw and did. And so that was our, that was our connection. Um, there was an original love that we had with one another, and we found it again. And I was absolutely shocked by how much feeling I had for her. And although she continued her way, my mother had no aha phenomenon. My mother still was critical, but it, it didn't bother me anymore. But we were able to watch the Yankees. And that was, <laughs> you know, I'd go there and we'd talk and, and we'd watch the Yankees. And her, her concentration was waning at the end as, as her... Uh, showed up so uh, she just wanted to talk she wanted to talk hear stories and I wanted to tell mine and uh, we got very close at the end well that's wonderful that you must feel uh, very much at peace about the whole the whole experience well I, I know that as a therapist because I have dealt with death and dying all my life and I know that uh, if you have a conflicted relationship with a loved one with any loved one uh, parent or, or sibling and if it goes unresolved when they die it's a very difficult death because the hope of change or the hope of resurrection or the, any of the hopes that you have secretly about one day it'll get better goes with it. I was so glad that we were able to get back uh, with one another. Um, it was an unusual situation for my mother because once she had the stroke, she was now 92, and she could not remember recent memory. It affected that part of her brain, but everything else was still there. So she was oriented. She knew everything. She could remember everything, but nothing recent. So she could not even realize that... Um, she didn't walk anymore, and we made we made jokes about it because she would ask everyone, "What's that wheelchair doing here?" Mm. And finally, after about six months, she had that moment of clarity that you read about in the dementia books. She uh, recognized that she couldn't walk anymore, and my mother had very salty language, and she would just say, well, "You know," she asked me, "What's going on?" And as a therapist, I said, well, why do you want to know? So she cut right through all of that. She said, you just tell me the answer <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in her languagey way. And I said, no, Ma, you, you, you can't walk anymore. Wow. And she said, didn't I tell you you're supposed to take me out back when I'm like this? I, I, didn't want, I don't want this. This is no life. Yeah. And um, my mother made the decision that day. She said, that's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm out of here. Mm. I, I don't want any more. I don't want to be a burden, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so we had this moment where we talked, and I said, are you sure? She said, would you want this? Would you want to live like this? And I said, no. And she said, well, you know, 
I'm so glad that we found one another again, and you've been a good son to me, and um, I, uh, you know, I have no regrets. The only one I have is I won't see your children's children, but we don't live forever, and uh, I choose to go. And that was on a Thursday, and uh, a day and a half later, I got the call that she had passed in her sleep. Wow. Wonderful. Wonderful just, for her that it just, was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. At 92 and a half, yeah, she really. said I'd had a full life. I mean, this is a woman who went from poverty to living, uh, she would take the Queen Mary from New York to London just so that she could fly home on the Concord. <laughs> she got married in the Plaza Hotel in New York. I mean, she lived like oh, the old-fashioned Rosalind Russell. You know, everywhere she went was uh, five suitcases and a trunk. So she had a good life, and uh, I was glad at the end that uh, that we found our peace. And uh, yes, and I miss her. Well, we appreciate. I, I never thought I would, but I do. We appreciate you sharing your story with us, Ken. Uh, Ken Ludmer. He is the author of his book, Insanity Begins at Home. Ken, what's the best way to get your book? Uh, you can get it at iUniverse. You can get it at uh, Amazon, and you could get it at Barnes and Noble. Thank you so much, Ken, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much for interviewing me. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 Central on Toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Hello everyone, I'm Clint Yates today on the iUniverse line. An investigative reporter and an up-and-coming movie star embark on a dangerous journey to determine who it is that wants their lives and why they are used as a test subject against their will and to stop those after an unthinkable, powerful force. That's the story behind the new book, Against Their Will, written by Nancy Livingstone. And she joins us on the iUniverse line today from her home in Wake Forest. Hello, Nancy. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, thanks. I hope you are. I'm doing great. Well, first, before we get deep into Against Their Will, tell us a little bit about yourself, a little of your background. Well, I have a background in educational background in biology and psychology education and then a graduate degree in counseling psychology. So that gives me an interest in people. I love to people watch, uh, observe their actions, reactions, uh, guess what their motivations are. And then also um, I enjoy as a hobby watching movies, TV shows, and not just watching the show, but going behind the scenes and looking at who does what and when and how it's done. And between these two things, that's the background that I use to come up with this book. Now, we were talking a little bit before we got started here. This is The story is generally set in two locations, and you have a little background in those in Texas and in California. Tell us a little bit about the backdrop of Against Their Will. Okay. Well, I lived in Houston for a while and worked at a hospital in the area, Herman Hospital, which is in the Texas Medical Center. Um, totally fascinated uh, with just the personalities and the people that I worked with, uh, the life of the hospital, the pulse beat that was there, some of the stories I heard from longtime employees about suspicions of things happening or not happening. <laughs> and then added to that, I also grew up in a medical family um, with a uh, grandfather who was a surgeon, mom who went to med school, and uncle who was in radiology, and I'm 
had enough interest in that to major in biology in undergrad school but didn't have enough guts to go to med school. So <laughs> I'm living out that dream by just writing about it. And so that Houston became a good setting for me because it's a versatile, big, thriving city. There's a lot of variety there. And it was a place I enjoyed living, so it was very easy to incorporate scenes and locations from around that area into the storyline. And then also I lived in Calif- Southern California for a while, and while I was there, also did um, a lot of the touristy stuff, but also researched into the uh, film and movie industry and learning about how that works and the production end of it. And again, um, I think uh, medicine and movies are two topic areas that a lot of people like to read about, whether it's fiction or real. Wow, interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the book. There's really two main characters that are that you're going to take us on this journey with through your book. Tell us about, about your two main characters. Sure. Um, the first one is Matt Grayson, and Matt is a Texas boy. He's born and raised in Katy, Texas, which is a small-town suburb uh, west of Houston. Uh, lived the farm life on the ranch, um, typical Texas son too as well as he was played football very much into football as a lot of Texans are uh, he goes to Hollywood is um, fortunate in that he becomes very successful almost immediately his second film has just been released when the story starts and he has um begged off a little time off to fly back to Houston for his mother's birthday and he's really looking forward uh, to getting home and getting away from the hoopla for a few days and that's where the story begins for him when he boards the plane in Los Angeles to Houston. The other main character is Lynn McCain and she is not a native of Texas. She grew up in the east outside of Washington D.C. and she is an investigative reporter and she's um, not a trusting person. She's very closed off to the world. She um, is described as having a shell about herself. And I think it's because of her suspicious nature that she has been successful in doing her investigative reporting. And she has flown out to California and has spent some time out there investigating um, some leads. She's come across for a piece that she started writing that was to highlight uh, the future of medicine, some of the future medical miracles that are on the horizon. And although she lives in Houston at the time, she um, again was is not from there. She meets uh, Matt Grayson when they're seated beside each other on this flight, and that's where the story begins. Um, the flight uh, back to Houston, I think everybody's going to know this before they read the book, the flight does crash, but it's what happens after the crash that, that really begins the story. Yeah, you just kind of jump into this thing quick. Uh, the best I can tell, first chapter, boy, we just get right into the action. Exactly. I wrote what I like to read, and I'm a thriller suspense addict, and I would never recommend this to any other writer to do this, but when I wrote this book, it was more like I had two characters in mind that I had um, conjured up really from watching TV and movies and kind of put them together, and then I also had a real-life event of my own where I was taking a flight from Houston to Kansas City, and it was a spring night. We started out the uh, weather was wonderful. The pilot came on, said, "Look down. You can, we're flying over some storms. You can see the lightning below, which you could, and it was fantastic to look at." And then the next thing I know, the plane is struck by lightning, and it was the roller coaster ride from hell. And I really think <laughs> thought I was never going to see land again, not in this life. And I took that event and plugged these two characters into it. And when the event ended, uh, I was kind of at a point. Where do I go now? Well, what can I do to surprise the reader next? And that's really how this story kind of came about until I had a, um, a pretty firm grip of where it was going to end, and then it, I didn't have to ask myself that question at the end of every chapter. <laughs> <laughs> now, you, you talk a little bit, uh, Nancy, about being a big fan of movies and, and some of the, the genre that kind of helped you with the book. Mm-hmm. And it was a movie, was it not, that kind of inspired some of the at least the characters and against their will 
Right. Uh, John Grisham's book, A Time to Kill, which ranks, that was his first major published novel, and it's one of my all-time favorites because his description of the people, his characters in the book, to me were very realistic. And, um, yes, inspiration for these two main characters came from the the star in the book and then the attorney, and that was uh, Matthew McConaughey and Sandra Bullock. And my two characters are not meant to be either Matthew McConaughey or Sandra Bullock real life or the total character in that uh, movie, but kind of an amalgamation of of them um, with some of the physical characteristics, maybe speech patterns, that type of thing, but otherwise the characters are unique. But A Time to Kill, to me, is like the the benchmark that I would aim for as far as getting believable characters because his description of them and the time period that they lived in uh, is very similar to my own childhood where I grew up and I could so relate to it. And that's another um, inspiration for me is to be able to write characters that people can relate to. Maybe these characters do things that people don't necessarily do, but still they're humans. They have human responses, human reactions, and therefore we can relate to them. Yeah, and I guess the Grisham book, at least, A Time to Kill, set in the South, much like most of your book and you know oh, Matthew McConaughey he's a Texas boy anyway so absolutely yeah. so <laughs> absolutely Nancy this is your first book what was challenging for you what what was the most difficult thing about putting against their will together uh really plotting it out uh knowing figuring out where I wanted the story to go where I wanted it to end and keeping it consistent and even though it's it's gone through many, many edits, <laughs> especially now since it's been released by Universe, um, it's been edited more times than I can count, uh, just making sure that everything connects, that there's no event or significant circumstance that is not resolved, that everything has a, a purpose and a meaning and that it all comes together at the end. So we figure it out at the end, but I'm... Um, just guessing from listening to you talk we're going to take a lot of twists and turns before we finally get there oh absolutely absolutely and there's one in particular that i hope the reader really won't guess until further into the story (laughs) that's another element of reading and writing that i enjoy is being surprised because i catch myself oh they're going to do this next they're going to do that next (laughs) and that's whether i'm watching tv movie or reading and i wanted to do that in my book uh to keep people guessing so obviously there's some things that you can't keep a secret or you wouldn't have a story but then there's other things that are going on that um, I do hope and expect to be somewhat of a surprise yeah. as they're revealed. Yeah, no no spoiler alert today here on IU. Yeah, so. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, uh, Nancy, t- tell us a little bit about where we can learn more about the book. Uh, do we, is it, where is it for sale? And, and do you have a blog or someplace where people can learn more about you? I do. Um, I have a personal website, and it's just simply nancylivingstone.com, and that's Livingstone with an E on the end. And that will get you to the blog, to my Facebook page, to Twitter, but I'm also on Twitter. I'm author Nancy Liv, L-I-V, and on my blog is Against Their Will dot wordpress.com and uh, all of these the blog I have a lot of uh, posts on there about how I've written various things and suggestions for aspiring writers or writers that are out there on how things can be done um, my website has an excerpt for the book Against Her Will it also has an excerpt for uh, my second book which is not released yet I hope to have it out next year which is Emerald Beach also has uh, information on where you can purchase the book it is available on Amazon as far as hardback paperback and Kindle versions it's available at Barnes and Noble and then you can also purchase it uh, from me on my website. And um, I also have uh, some information in there. Um, again, if you would like to contact me, if you have questions or anything like that, also about a, promo- a book promotion I have going on now for anybody that uh, purchases the book via Kindle and post a review on Amazon, let me know, and I will send you a free autographed uh, paperback oh, wow. copy. 
Well, you you spoke of your second book, and, and you talk a little bit, too, Nancy, about helping other authors. Uh, mm-hmm. When you and I were talking before our interview started, you, I got the indication that you learned a lot, that wow. that what you're doing in your second novel is a lot different than the first. So did you learn a lot of lessons that you're applying and that you can help pass on to other potential oh, authors? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I've learned so much, and I, they say experience is a great teacher, and I would understand score and highlight that and put exclamation points all around it because it's very true. And the lessons you learn through experience really tend to stay with you. And while it took me a long time to finally get against their will together and in one piece so it was marketable, um, the, the dead ends I took and the wrong turns and everything else and learning to correct those um, were invaluable and that's something that I do like to share with other authors and, and have informally and informally and you know if there are authors out there that go to my website if they go to the contact page and want to ask me questions about writing or how to do this that or the other I am happy to help any way I can can't say I will always have the best answer in the world but I'm certainly glad to share um, um, what little I do know, if, and if that helps, that's super. Wow, that's terrific. Again, the name of the book we've been talking about today is Against Their Will by Nancy Livingstone, who is on the iUniverse line. Now, Nancy, we talked a little bit about Time to Kill. Any thoughts about movie, adapting this to a screenplay? Anything Very much. I could see it being a movie, and I've had several people say that to me. When is it going to become the movie? <laughs> so we're looking at doing some marketing in that regard. Haven't started yet, but uh, hoping uh, there is a book trailer that is supposed to be in production now and um, that is supposed to be marketed to Hollywood uh, various individuals that iUniverse has determined uh, could make decisions on such things so of course I mean I would be lying (laughs) (laughs) big time if I said I wouldn't want it to be a movie but it is the kind of when I wrote it a part of it in my head was I was visualizing it as a movie Um, again to go hand in hand I'm a movie freak and a book freak (laughs) well you mentioned it just quick can you give us uh, before we run out of time a little Mm -hmm. hint about the book you're working on on that's uh, your your next one that's coming out? Yes, it's a sequel to Against Their Will, and I have will say I've been getting a lot of pressure to get that sequel underway, <laughs> and um, it's just in the formative stages now. I have the characters in place, I have the basic scenario, and I'll just say read the headlines of today and project anything bad that could possibly happen from them as far as a medical sense goes. Um, Obviously, it's not going to be Ebola-related because I believe truly that's going to be cured or eradicated or whatever by the time this book could be finished. But I'm going to take some of the same personality traits of humans looking for their own advantage, um, whether greed or whatever, to to profit over some kind of bad situation. And again, we're going to have people coming in that are are going to be against that. So we'll have the protagonist and the antagonist going at each other. <laughs> and it's going to be medical-based, yeah. and it's also going to have some pharmaceutical industry elements mm. in it, and looking at big pharma, profit motives, government intervention, government conspiracy, you name it. <laughs> We're mm-hmm. going to put a little dash of everything there. Uh, the two characters uh, from against, the two main characters from Against Their Will will have, a, um, have an influence on this mm. book, but we we're going to be seeing some new yeah. people as well. Wow, that's interesting. We'll be looking forward to that. But right now, I encourage everyone to consider Against Their Will. Sounds like a great novel by Nancy Livingstone. She's been with us today on the iUniverse line. Nancy, good luck with the book and the sequel, and thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.